Welcome back to Jimbo Radio. I'm Jimbo, and these are random topics of interest. Most episodes, like today's episode, arrive from conversations with friends, followed by further investigations. This is episode 10, Ancient Miracles, with historian Tim O'Neill from History for Atheists. Tim explains his purpose at History from Atheists in greater detail. After that, we discuss a few of the documented non-Jesus miracles, and we dive into Jesus' miracles and resurrection. Please visit History for Atheists and the articles of Tim's mentioned in the podcast. There are links in the show notes. Tim, welcome. Can you tell us more about what you're doing at History for Atheists? I'm the author of the History for Atheists uh, website, so historyforatheists.com, and uh, that has since evolved into a uh, podcast-video channel, so I, I record reasonably regular videos, sometimes interviews like a bit like this one, uh, with his, usually with historians. And uh, others are just me talking about some of the topics that I, I cover on the site. And that uh, also goes out as a podcast. So it's, it, it began, as a, I suppose, as a way of saving myself time, and, and that has proven to be a complete failure because uh, the origins of history for atheists was back in the, in the, late, in the mid to late 2000s. I, you know, I suppose I was contributing to quite a few atheist websites and, and uh, on Reddit and, and various um, blogs and, and forums. And this was sort of in the wake of Dawkins, Hitchens and Harris bringing out their books in the early 2000s. So there's kind of an upswing in what used to be referred to as the new atheism, sort of like a new wave of atheism. What I found was a couple of things. First of all, atheists getting together to talk about atheism is usually pretty boring. Um, you know, there's only so many times you can agree with each other. Uh, I should stress that I'm an atheist myself, by the way, just in case anyone's confused. And uh, secondly, I, I also found that a hell of a lot of, of the arguments that were being used by atheists on these forums were not philosophical, theological, or even scientific. They were historical. So a lot of them took the form of um, religion X, was usually Christianity, occasionally Islam, is bad because look at this bad thing that they did in, in history. And, you know, it's a bad thing here. Now, some of these bad things are certainly things that have definitely happened, like, um, you know, the cover-up of child sexual abuse in the churches and so on. But uh, as someone who's been an atheist for the whole my adult life, but also who specialises in the study of the origins of Christianity, the study of, uh, of the history of Christianity and also ancient medieval history, generally, and to a certain extent, early modern history. Um, I, I found that a lot of the arguments that were being used based on history were based on some really crappy history. So they were based largely on historical myths, misconceptions that people have, a kind of a high school level grasp of, of how history played out, plays out, and some cliches, you know, things like more wars have been fought over religion than any other subject, which isn't actually true, but people repeat that all the time. So I found myself refuting, sometimes quitting some detail, a lot of this stuff, um, and 
And what happened was I, I found I was saying the same stuff over and over again, which kind of got boring for me. So what I started doing was I started the blog. Uh, this was this was quite a few years ago now. And, and then that evolved into the History for Atheists website. What I do on History for Atheists is I debunk myths about history, particularly about the history of, of religion, substantially Christianity, um, but mainly myths that were entirely myths that uh, are, are used as arguments by my fellow atheists because we talk, as atheists, we talk about being rational, we talk about checking your facts and we talk about paying attention to experts and we talk about not simply repeating myths and not basing your arguments on, on trite little cliches and memes. Yet we're not very good at doing that when it comes to history. So, Well, Tim, that only counts for other people's ideas. It doesn't count for ours. That seems to be the case, uh, Jimbo, in, in a lot of ways, yeah. Um, yeah, we're humans, and, and people like certain ideas, and, and we, all, we all have to guard against confirmation bias and, you know, psychology uh, traps like uh, presuming that, that things that seem to align with your worldview must be true and things that don't align with your worldview must be wrong. A true sceptic is constantly questioning that stuff. And I find a hell of a lot of our fellow atheists and fellow rationalists aren't very good at practising what they preach when it comes to this stuff. And also are highly, to be blunt, historically illiterate because a lot of atheists come to atheism from a scientific background or maybe from a philosophical background or just from leaving a faith and, and kind of going in the opposite direction and often this means that they are working from a, a, a understanding of history which is pretty basic and you know, really anyone who's studied history past high school level realises that the first thing you do once you get to university to study history is you have to unlearn everything you learned at high school because it's almost completely wrong or at least so, so, so simplistic that um, it's, it's basically useless. So this is why I'm quite often doing things like taking a meme that I see on an atheist website and writing a 10,000-word article about why the meme is wrong um, uh, because there's this what's called the asymmetry of bullshit. You know, it's, it's far harder to, to debunk a simple but stupid idea that's wrong than it is to, to simply present a stupid, simple idea. So anyway, it, it's my hobby. Um, keeps me keeps me off, off, off the streets and, and keeps me occupied. I enjoy it, and it seems that quite a few other people enjoy it as well. I have definitely enjoyed the stuff that I've looked at. I, I have fallen victim to everything you just said. I took one history class. It was a complete joke in college, and I uh, probably learned almost nothing about history, if not absolutely nothing. And yeah, I kind of came to atheism through like learning about science, and being being interested in philosophy and yeah you hear someone that says something that that i like and you just kind of luckily i guess for me i i do enjoy debunking like anything that i like whenever i learned that something i thought i knew was is wrong like i like that like you know that's something that i enjoy doing being more informed so that's kind of i guess allows me to easily give up on other ideas if i have an argument or a reason to yeah, and it's interesting. I, I actually yes, just yesterday recorded a, an interview myself for my own podcast and, and video channel with a guy called Sebastian Major. And Sebastian runs a podcast called Our Fake History, which is basically about historical myths. He's a high school 
history teacher he was he's now a full-time podcaster it's a great it's a really good uh, resource his, his podcast it's fantastic we got talking though because he did a really good three-part um, podcast on the myths around the Galileo affair or about about the trial of Galileo debunking the standard uh, version that most people particularly most atheists accept which is that it was a clash between science and religion and that Galileo was wise and right and good and the church was evil and stupid and superstitious and wrong and Galileo was was the hero and they were the villains, uh, which is a lovely story, but it's just not what happened. And he goes into great detail, three-plus hours of, uh, of, of detail on why that isn't true. And, of course, copped a lot of flack from people saying, oh, you were trying really hard to make the Catholic Church sound good. He said, no, I was trying really hard to, to get the real history across because the, the myth is simple but simplistic and wrong. But we were talking about why, um, generally, about why people accept historical myths and how you can debunk them. And, and I'm like you. I actually I remember hearing that, you know, learning the Galileo story the way everyone learns it. And then the first time I heard at university that that wasn't quite true, my first thought was, well, that sounds wrong, you know, because I hate the Catholic Church. Um, then I went and did some proper research and found actually, you know, there's no right or wrong in the whole thing. It was just it's stuff that happened. But the church wasn't stupid or superstitious. They were actually quite up to date with the with their science. They actually have the science of the day on their side. Galileo was wrong about most stuff. You got the heliocentrism right, but he was wrong about everything else. And and a lot of what was going on was actually to do with politics, uh, to do with personal personal um, clashes, to do with a whole lot of other stuff that had nothing to do with science or religion. So it, but it was interesting that that I, I like you, I, I think, oh, right, okay, I was wrong. I'm now happy that I, I've learned something more. Where there are a lot of people who get very defensive and, and don't like having to admit that they're wrong. Um, and, and as a result, they kind of hate me and hate my website, which is okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, I don't transition that quickly. Like, um, actually we, we briefly emailed about Reza Aslan. So that was one where like, I like had regurgitated some things that he had said, uh, about Jesus's brother, James. And I, because I listened to his book, I didn't realize that the stuff he did isn't even referenced. And then when, so then <laughs> when I got in an argument with a Christian person, that's kind of calling me out on making up, you know, ideas, and then I go back to prove myself right, and I realize that I'm wrong. It's like, oh, <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that's good. Now I won't be wrong. Like next time I have this argument. <laughs> I'm not saying it's always fun to be wrong, but you know, for years I, I used speaking of Jesus' brother James. For years I used an argument. I won't go into the details. Quite technical, but I used an argument based on a reading of uh, of the Jewish historian Josephus about the existence of James and therefore the existence of Jesus, because Josephus does refer to James and, and does refer to him as being Jesus' brother. And uh, and that gets disputed by the, the, the people who believe there was no Jesus at all, uh, who I think are completely wrong, and most historians agree are completely wrong. But they, they have very convoluted arguments. And I, had, I was using an argument to, to refute them, and it, I was wrong. I was misreading. I was getting two people mixed up in Josephus. I think the thing you do, I did what, what you meant to do, which is like, oh, okay, I won't use that argument anymore. You know, I've, I've obviously I've obviously used an argument that's bad. 
Whereas what I often find is that people just double down and double down and double down, including some very prominent atheists, you know, people like Aron Ra, who is um, very good on, on the stuff that he, he became famous for, which is debunking creationists. He's terrible on history, uh, absolutely appalling. And I had to write, uh, I wrote a, a detailed article um, pull, pulling apart some stuff that he's been saying for years. He, he's got this sort of bit where he gets up and talks about how the church taught the earth was flat and a lot of stuff about Galileo and Giordano Bruno, and he's completely wrong on every single point. He he didn't like the fact that I had debunked his little, little set speech and eventually had to concede one small point, but it stuck to his guns on the rest even though he was completely wrong. Now, I know a lot of people love that guy, but frankly, if you're going to hold yourself up as a rationalist, then you need to accept that you might not be right about everything and that you can't be an expert on everything. I'm sure he's good in his science, but on history, he's a complete joke. And, and, and a lot of people get very angry with me for saying, how dare you attack a Ron Ra? I'll attack him if he's a dickhead and he's wrong. That's <laughs> as simple as that. Yeah, I definitely see that a lot with with intellectuals. Uh, you know, you 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 had that episode. I think it was on Constantine, but you you called out Dawkins for who is an amazing biologist, yeah. not that great of a philosopher, and probably not very good at religious history. Terrible at history. Yeah, I mean, it, when when you've got Dawkins agreeing with Joe Rogan, who isn't exactly what you call a great intellectual, then you know that that's probably a bit of a, a warning bell. And and this is what I found is that. A lot of these guys, I mean, Hitchens is another one. Hitchens has a paragraph in God is Not Great about the relationship between the church uh, during the Second World War and the Nazis. And every single statement that he makes is, is factually wrong. It's not just a matter of interpretation. He is factually wrong in every single point. And yet I see people repeating those, those claims about Pius the, the Twelfth being a, a great friend to the Nazis. He wasn't. He hated the Nazis and the Nazis hated him. But... Hitchens read a book called Hitler's Pope, which has since been completely debunked, and the author has, has since uh, retracted most of, you know, accepted that he was wrong on, on most of his major points. And Hitchens didn't care about, about the actual history. He just wanted to get a kick in against the Catholic Church. Now, I've got no problem with people kicking the Catholic Church. I'm not a big fan myself, but you've got to get your facts right. And this is really where I'm, I, I suppose I'm coming from. Or you don't, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he's a best-selling author and I'm not. If you want to be a best-selling author, get your facts wrong. You know, just Yeah, and well, this is the thing. I mean, I've got about like four or 5,000 followers on my video channel and Aron Ra has like half a million. So I think telling people what they want to hear is more popular than telling people <laughs> that they're wrong about stuff. But I don't care. I'm not in it for the followers. I think a lot of atheists would probably be misled when they go to your site. They're like, oh, history for atheists. Good. This is what I need. I need like the history that atheists. And then they get there and they're like, oh, no, you're wrong about almost everything <laughs> you say. Well, I'm constantly being told that I'm really a Christian. Uh, people mistake. <laughs> so, even though I've got like, I am an atheist and on every single page. Uh, and, and I'm also being told that I'm, I'm secretly a Christian. And my favourite one that I often like to quote, a guy was was uh, mentioned me in some other kind of forum said, don't pay any attention to Tim O'Neill. He's a paid Vatican operative. And, I, I, well, I, I, that's news to me. And um, I'm, I'm owed a lot of back pay by the Pope if that's the case. So, you know, pay up, you bastard. 
So let's transition to what I wanted to mainly talk about, and that's uh, ancient miracles. Sure. And this is derived from just conversations I've had with my Christian apologist friends. They will kind of be, I guess, bewildered that I don't accept the resurrection as <laughs> as like a historical fact. Sure. You know, the way that I come back at it is like, oh, well, so do you accept every like documented miracle? And then they say, oh, well, which ones do you know? And then I, I don't really know any. So, you know, like maybe I'll, I, I know like some of the myth stories of like the Buddha. And I know maybe some things about like Alexander's mom uh, said he was the son of God. And, you know, so like, I don't actually know any. So when I went to look for them, I realized they weren't as easy to find as as I was expecting. And actually, so someone reckon, someone that I came across on Reddit recommended that I reach out to you. Sure. Okay. Well, look, I think it's a, it's a good topic. And it means that uh, I can actually um, uh, refute those people who say that I'm, I'm secretly a Christian by, um, for once, debunking bad Christian arguments rather than bad atheist ones. Yeah, so look, I think you, you're making, I think, a very valid argument, uh, which is there's this strange split personality amongst or, or, or sort of you know, cognitive dissonance amongst uh, amongst Christians where it, where they read their, their holy book, so they read the, the miracle accounts in the Gospels and accept them because, well, because it's in the Gospels and because it's about Jesus. But if you read something similar, written around about the same time, in the same cultures that, that made similar claims, they would, they would immediately say, well, that's not true. And, and the problem with that is, okay, well, why are you accepting one set of miracle claims in a set of ancient texts and not, and not the other? And, and as you say, you know, you, you've got to have some specifics. I'll be happy to go into, into a few specifics for you. But... It's it's a very valid argument because they're they're kind of accepting as though it's something that was written in the newspaper yesterday, stuff that was written decades after Jesus' time, as the Gospels, in a culture where people accepted the supernatural in a way that we don't, uh, who thought about the supernatural in a way that even people who believe in the supernatural today don't, and and who also. Uh, tended to quite often tended to use miracle stories rhetorically. So even when they didn't really think that that was really what happened, they'd write it in the story as a way of saying rhetorically, this is a significant person because the miraculous tended to, to wrap itself around people of great importance and significance. So it was a way in a story of saying something rhetorically about who this person was. So, so to give you a couple of examples of, uh, of, of stories that are very similar to um, the stories of Jesus, uh, there's a guy called Apollonius of Tiana. Uh, Apollonius lived a bit before Jesus, lived in the, in the late uh, first century, we think, late first century BC. And he was a, a philosopher, um, a wandering teacher, a bit like Jesus. Uh, he, he, had, um, he had followers and he established a kind of a school of philosophy he was kind of a kind of a, a neo Pythagorean. Um, he he, and and there were miracle stories told about him reasonably soon after his life. So again, the parallels are pretty obvious, and the miracle stories are actually incredibly similar to the ones about Jesus. 
So, for example, he, he, he turns up and drives demons out of people. He heals the sick. Uh, he, he, he is able to be in two places at the same time, or at least able to teleport from, from one place to another and be seen you know, in these widely separated places on the same day. Uh, he, uh, he ascends into heaven after he dies and appears to his followers in a dream, not in a vision, but you know, what's the difference? Um, to, to basically say, yes, I'm, I'm, now, I'm now ascended into the heavens. Um, all very, very similar. Now, one of the problems is our, our main source of these stories is a guy called Philostratus, who was writing centuries later. And we don't know uh, if, if, if his stories about Apollonius weren't influenced by the stories about Jesus. We don't know which way the fertilisation goes or, or if they're just parallels because they're in the same culture. What we do know is that these kinds of stories were told about significant people all the time. So if you look at, for example, um, the Emperor Augustus, a story was is recorded in, uh, in the life of Augustus by the, the Roman historian Suetonius about how his mother, was was miraculously miraculously gave birth of conceived of him in um, uh, when when he was visited she was visited by the, the god Apollo so I'm just looking for the the reference so it's um, Augustus uh, his mother Artia is is uh, goes to a service of Apollo and she falls asleep in her litter outside the temple and a serpent glides up into into her uh, into her litter and next thing she knows. She uh, she's pregnant and she gives birth to um, uh, to uh, the Emperor Augustus. So we've got a miraculous conception. No father involved. Who does that sound like? Um, you got another another story about from from uh, Cassius Dio about how after the the um, Roman dictator Julius Caesar was assassinated, his successor, the same Augustus, saw a comet in the sky and uh, decided that it was a sign that he, uh, Caesar had descended into heaven and so raised a, a statue and dedicated a temple to Caesar and Caesar became worshipped as a god. So he dies, ascends into heaven. Um, we've got a story of the founder of Rome, Romulus, who apparently also ascended into heaven and then appeared to one of his followers and who said, you know, I, I, who had said, I don't, don't believe it. And so he appeared to his followers in a godlike form. Um, so these are all very, very similar. The Emperor Vespasian is said to have healed a blind man and a, and a man with a withered arm. And the story of him healing a blind man is actually a direct parallel to the story, one of the, 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 the healing miracles of Jesus. He makes a paste out of dust and rubs it on the man's eyes and the man can see, exactly parallel to a gospel story about Jesus. So there's plenty so the question to, um, uh, to the Christians is, okay, I'll believe your miracle story if you believe these, or you need to explain to me why yours are, are more able to be believable than, than this, these ones. And it gets even worse with, the, uh, with the, the whole question of the resurrection because the resurrection is it, it's basically a, a kind of story that we find in other ancient texts all the time. Now, this can be overstated, and some people who don't believe that there was any kind of Jesus at all say, well, it's all just cobbled together from other, other um, similar types of miracle stories. 
Um, that's, I don't think that's true. I think what's going on here is just as Augustus was a historical person, Julius Caesar was a historical person, Vespasian was a historical person, people began to tell miracle stories about people that they considered to be significant. But one of the, the most common of these stories is one that I, I've just kind of referred to, which is what we call apotheosis, which is where someone who was a human is elevated to a higher or even divine status after their death. So Romulus is one example. Julius Caesar is another. Um, Augustus came to be worshipped as a god because it was just kind of assumed since he was the son of a god. He was actually called the son of God, if that sounds familiar. Um, he, he, he came to be worshipped as a god as well. This apotheosis idea was extremely common, and we actually have stories about um, uh, people who die and people who then go to their tomb and find their tomb empty. So there's a, a novel about a guy called uh, Caraeus visiting the tomb of his recently dead wife, and in the novel it says he arrived at the tomb at daybreak and he found the stones covering the opening to the tomb had been removed and the entrance had been opened, and so he, he became afraid. Um, various others who were there are afraid to go in, but he goes in and finds his body missing and assumes that she's been taken up by the gods. Now, anyone who's read the gospel accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus will recognise several of those elements. So this is, this is basically saying that this stuff was in the air at the time, and and for people to simply say, well, these stories here uh, about, about Jesus, these ones are true, but these ones over here about various Roman emperors and, and Greek philosophers, they're all nonsense because people in the ancient world believe nonsense. Well, you can't have it both ways. So you have, they have to try and explain why we should accept the Jesus ones and not the other ones. I think the Christians do have a good reason. I'm not saying it's a good argument, but they have a good reason to believe that there's something to the amount of documentation that their religion has acquired compared to the other the other ones. And I think my reason is a lot better than than theirs, and I think my argument is a lot better than theirs. But I can see why, like, if you believe that a divine being can do things, and yeah, of course, the divine being is gonna going to have Christianity win out because that's the good idea. So I could see them. Um, I don't know the exact uh, name of, of that fallacy, but I I would say it's a good reason for them. So usually what's happening when you, when you, when you're arguing with a Christian on this sort of stuff, they're trying to find reasons to justify intellectual reasons to justify their emotional commitment. Um, and, you know, I was raised a Christian yeah, I wasn't a very good one, but I was raised a Christian. So I, I remember, I understand how this works. The, the problem, I mean, the, the way they, they, they respond to me when I, when I point this out is they say, well, these accounts by, uh, in the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses that were written quite soon afterwards and so on, um, which is largely wrong. Uh, uh, most critical scholars agree that the Gospels were not written by eyewitnesses. They were all written, you know, about max, minimum 40 maximum, you know, about 90, maybe 100, 100 years after, um, which is more than enough time for, for stories, miracle stories to develop. And Bart Ehrman has written a, um, a, a book called Jesus Before the Gospels about this period between Jesus' lifetime and when the first gospel, the Gospel of Mark, was written and, and, and what, how much can happen you know, in, in the development of a story, the growth of a story 
in that intervening period. Also, if we, one of the things that you can do is if you, if you look at the miracle stories in the Gospels, what you find is that there's a development over time. Um, so the earliest Gospel, Mark, has quite a few miracle stories, but most of them are just faith healing and exorcism stories. So it's, you know, Jesus turned up at this place and he healed some people. Well, Jesus turned up at this place and he, he drove some demons out of people and they were, they were, they were healed. Um, I would argue that that's probably the origin point of the, the, the idea of Jesus as a miracle worker because even today you have faith healers who can lay hands on people and the people will afterwards will say, I'm healed. Now, it's possibly psychosomatic, it's probably psychosomatic, it's probably psychological, it's probably they felt, you know, they felt a bit ill and now they feel a bit better and so on. Um, also with exorcism, all you need with exorcism, you don't actually need actual demons. You just need someone who thinks they're possessed by a demon and that this other person can drive the demon out and the person who thinks that they're possessed by a demon and they can drive the demon out. It's like a bit of theatre. And exorcisms exist, that kind of concept exists in many cultures around the world. It doesn't mean demons exist. It just means this idea has, has a great powerful psychological um, uh, hold on, on some people in some cultures. So if you look at the earlier Gospels, the, the spectacular miracles are fairly few. You know, the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water and stuff, there's not much of that. It's mainly this, this fairly naturalistic stuff. As you go further in time, though, when you get to the last gospel that was written, which was the Gospel of John, you get far fewer miracles, but they're far more spectacular. And we find the same thing with the, with the resurrection accounts. Now, the resurrection accounts grow in detail as time goes on, but they, they get more increasingly contradictory. So the, the earliest um, account simply has a young man at the, uh, at the empty tomb saying he's risen. And that turns into two young men with shining faces, and then that turns into an angel of the Lord who comes down from heaven and rolls the stone away and makes the guards fall down, you know, guards that weren't actually mentioned in any of the other gospel accounts. So the whole thing is growing in the tilling. You can, you can absolutely see that. So the, the Christian argument that, um, well, we've got much better, uh, much, much, much more reliable accounts of these miracles falls apart once you start to, to look at the nature of the miracles and also look at the development of the miracles over over time and and for any listeners tim has written exclusively on both of these two topics we've talked about and and i'll put links in the podcast notes for that so back to the, back to the miracles though what, what would you say is the most historically reliable miracle besides jesus the ones that actually happened I'm assuming you believe that no miracles. I will, you know, correct me. You know, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm okay. a complete naturalist and I'm a skeptic. I don't believe in miracles at all. So same here. But but let's say we want to just look purely historically. Like, what's the best documented miracle, or what's the most plausible? I uh, I guess plausible is not not the best word, but I think you get what I mean. I do. Yeah. Okay, well, I did just mention the, the Emperor Vespasian um, healing the, the blind man and the man with the withered arm. That's in the Roman historian uh, Tacitus, so it's in his Histories Book 4, um, verse 81. So anyone can go and have a look at that. So what the, the situation there is that this is before Vespasian was emperor. Vespasian was a Roman general, and he became emperor as 
basically because he was the last man standing in a, in a fairly nasty civil war, sort of year 69 AD, known as the year of the four, four emperors. The, uh, the Emperor Nero had been deposed and, and killed, and then there were you know, a series of emperors in rapid succession. Vespasian was over in Judea putting down a rebellion by the Jews, and uh, he got word that this is what was happening in Rome. So he left his son Titus to do the mopping up operation in Judea to, to finish off this rebellion, and he went, went to Rome to, uh, to basically have his go at becoming emperor, which he, he succeeded in doing. Tacitus is writing about 30 years later uh, under the reign of, of another of, of Vespasian's sons. So he's not going to say bad things about the, <laughs> the founder of the Flavian dynasty, um, but he was certainly, you know, he was definitely a fan of the Flavian dynasty. So, but the interesting thing about it is that Tacitus is actually, for an ancient historian, reasonably sceptical. Um, he, he doesn't like reporting rumours. Uh, he, he's quite sceptical of, of accounts of, of miracles on the whole. So, but he does tell this story about when Vespasian was passing through Alexandria. Uh, he, was, he was begged at the, the temple of, of the god Serapis, who was a god of healing. He was begged by a couple of, of, the, of people, this blind guy and this guy with a withered arm, to try and, and heal him. And so he says, Vespasian, supposing that all things were possible to his good fortune and that nothing was any longer past belief, with a joyous countenance amid the intense expectation of the multitude of bystanders, accomplished what was required. The hand was instantly restored to its use and the light of day shone upon the blind. And then Tacitus says, persons actually present attest to both facts, even now when nothing is gained by falsehood. So he, he's basically saying, look, it, it, I think this happened because people uh, who, are, who were there at the time have said this, and also Vespasian is now dead. So, you know, why would they lie? Well, because his son was, uh, one of his sons was, was still emperor at the time that he was writing. But um, he then goes on, though, to sort of say, well, but maybe there's a naturalistic explanation for these two miracles. So he, he's actually reasonably sceptical about it in, 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 as much as an ancient, uh, ancient writer could be. But then he follows that with an account of another miracle where, where the emperor goes into a temple, into the temple, he, he sees someone uh, who he thinks he recognises and then later on says to this person, I saw you in the temple, and this person says, I wasn't there. So it, it's some kind of vision. Um, and Tacitus reports that one straight as well and doesn't give any kind of naturalistic explanation for it. So it's, it's interesting that um, a sceptical writer at the time was presenting something which was, uh, which was, sounds to us like a fantastical story, but he was saying, well, maybe it actually happened. And again, faith healing sometimes works. I mean, you could have hysterical blindness. Um, the withered arm bit, that's a, that's a little bit harder to explain away. Yeah, so uh, there's, a, there's another story. This one's about Alexander the Great. So he's in Egypt and um, he, he's looking for a, a fairly remote temple where, where there's an oracle, like a, a divine oracle, because he's, he's looking for um, a sign of what he should be doing next in his wars. And he can't find this temple. He's got, you know, they're walking through the desert and there's two accounts of how he miraculously found this, this temple out in the middle of the desert. One is he was led there by a flock of ravens 
Another is he was led there by two talking snakes. Now, the interesting thing is both these accounts are told to us or, or, or are attributed to generals of his who were there at the time. So which was it? Was it a flock of ravens or was it two talking snakes? We don't know. Um, now, a flock of ravens, you know, that, that, that could happen. It could be by chance he came across some ravens and the ravens, for whatever reason, flew in the direction of the temple. Who knows? Talking snakes, it's a little bit more difficult to explain. But we've got a historian who says, I got this directly from this guy. And we've got the other account, which is actually by the fellow who was there. That's the one with the talking snakes. So what's going on here? You know, it's, it's really difficult to get our, ourselves in the, in the headspace of people 2,000 years ago. And that's because we, we work within a, a worldview that is scientific, even if we're not actually great believers in science, um, and that is philosophically completely different to, to the world of the ancient, ancient the, these people in the ancient world. Um, we live in this sort of post humean world. So after David Hume came along and sort of said, look, here's how he, he wrote a, a great book back in the, in the 18th century on, on miracles. It's called On Miracles. And he, he's got this very, he, he comes up with this very, very skeptical idea of there, there's this sort of the natural world and, there, and then there has to be this other supernatural world. Let's see if that supernatural world actually makes sense. No, it doesn't. That's pretty much his conclusion. But this division of the natural and the supernatural is something that we as modern people have all internalised, even people who believe in the supernatural. People in the ancient world didn't have that hard division. So they, they believed that miracles happen in, in, in much the same way that, that you and I believe that weather happens. It's just part of the world. The only difference between miracles and, and the weather is that miracles were rarer. And so miracles, and, and miracles were significant. But there wasn't this idea that, that we've got the natural world and then there's a, a kind of a subversion or, or, or some kind of uh, putting aside of the normal way in which the natural world works, which is how modern believers in the supernatural, Christians who believe in miracles, for example, explain miracles. That's what happens. God's power puts aside the usual laws of the natural world. Well, the ancients didn't think that way at all. And so as a result, they lived in a world that was highly permeated by what we would call the supernatural. And so they believed in visions and they believed that dreams were somehow visions and connected to the future and possibly the, the past. And they believed in, in what we would call miracles. They just didn't think they happened very often. Because of that, you wouldn't have anyone wasting their time debunking Jesus's re resurrection. Maybe like like one out of ten thousand people can even write. Like, why is this person going to waste any time writing about this little tribe of people that are causing a little, little bit of trouble in this little part of the of uh, the Roman Empire? Absolutely, and no one no one bothered to even even try doing that until Christianity actually started to become reasonably um, significant in, in size, and that wasn't until like about the third century. So we actually do get some books written by pagans. Um, so, you know, Celsus was, is one, for example. What's the name of that? Um, Celsus, C-E-L-S-U-S. -E -E um, he, he, he wrote a book. We don't have the book, but we've got the book that the Christians wrote in response. So we've actually got large chunks of what Celsus wrote. And he, he sort of, he, but he didn't say Jesus didn't do miracles. What he said was that Jesus was a magician. So he used magic 
to do miracles. And magicians were kind of considered a bit dodgy, a little bit dubious. But he didn't actually say, oh, this guy was a fraud. He just said this guy used dubious means to perform these things as well as possibly some tricks as well. But, yeah, at the time, there was the idea that there were, we would have a whole lot of Roman documents saying this guy has claimed to have done this and, and this isn't true because we've got these, these witnesses that said that didn't happen. I mean, no, no one was paying any attention to Jesus. He was in the backwater of a backwater. Uh, this, this is why the, the Jesus mythicists, the people who say um, Jesus didn't exist, they say, well, there's no references to him. Well, there wouldn't be. <laughs> we've, got, we've got no references by Roman historians in their lifetime to any other of the, the various uh, Jewish um, miracle workers, wonder workers, preachers, messianic claimants, and so on at all. Well, all we've got is some references to them written down decades or centuries after their time, which is what we've got for Jesus. It's kind of interesting because you're talking about a time where people would have believed in miracles. But in the U.S., 80% of Americans, according to a Pew survey, believe in miracles. It doesn't, uh, the survey doesn't define exactly how they asked or what the people think or believe. So got, obviously there's going to be probably a drastic difference, but yeah, I mean, we're still in a time where a lot of people believe in miracles. We, we definitely are. And and this is why, you know, when, when people sort of pretend that we're living in some highly rational age, I, to say to them, like go to your, your average new age convention or, you know, UFO convention, you'll find that we aren't. People haven't changed much, you know. People love these these, these stories. People like to have the, these beliefs. I mean, I'm not I'm not an absolute hardball skeptic to say there's absolutely no way that any of these things could be possibly be true. But I'm skeptical enough to say, well, I've, I've been looking at this stuff for 35 years, and I've yet to come across a single miracle story that I couldn't sort of say, well, I think I know how that 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 one arose. So, yeah, I mean, we we are no more intelligent now than we were back then, and they were no less intelligent back then than we are now. Uh, there certainly were sceptics back then, but that was largely because they, they there were a lot of frauds. So the scepticism was less about can miracles happen at all. It was more about, well, yeah, miracles can happen, but this guy over here who says that he, he can make a statue talk uh, he's a fake, and he's just ripping people off. So there, there certainly were sceptics back then, but it was that kind of scepticism. What would it take for someone to convince you of Jesus's resurrection? Uh, well, a hell of a lot, because, well, we'd have to have some kind of new evidence, and I don't think that's going to turn up anytime soon. The problem with the resurrection is if you look at the accounts, uh, they, as I, as I mentioned before, it's a story growing in the telling. So the earliest account is, is in Paul. So it's in Paul's um, first letter to the Corinthians, Corinthians 1.15, where he, and Christians love quoting this because they say, you know, look, Paul says there were 500 witnesses because Paul says, well, he, you know, he, he, if you don't believe in, in, in that Jesus rose from the dead, then, then basically my preaching is in vain and, and the gospel is in vain. So you, you, it's central. It's certainly central to Paul's theology. Yeah, and, and uh, anyone listening should definitely check out this graph that, that Tim has on, on his answer that shows this progression. 
Yeah, true. Sorry, I forgot I, I did that. Yeah, kind of a table showing showing what elements popped up when and what what versions of the story. But in in Paul, he's sort of saying, well, yeah, yeah, he definitely rose from the dead because he appeared to 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 Peter. He appeared to James. He appeared to five hundred of uh, of the brothers together at one time. Some of whom are dead. Some of whom are still alive. And then, last of all, he appeared to me. Now, the problem with with this for Christians is that Paul didn't see a physical uh, revivified corpse. He, you know, the, the, the stories in the Gospels where Jesus is, turns up and he's, you know, they're poking fingers, fingers into the wounds on his, in his side and he's eating fried fish and all this stuff, he's definitely like a human physical person back from the dead. Paul saw a vision. Right? So Paul actually says that he, he, he basically saw a vision. And the word that he uses in First Corinthians is the same. It's the same verb for all of those appearances. So what Paul seems to be talking about is something quite different to what we find in the Gospels. It seems to be something more spiritual. Now he then goes on to talk about resurrection bodies and how Jesus's body is a prefigurement of the bodies that you'll have after you rise from the dead at the end of time. But he also makes it very clear that the resurrection body is not like a physical body. So whatever he thinks he saw Jesus as doesn't seem to have been a physical human being that you know is like you or me right now. But as the story grows, it becomes more concrete, it becomes more detailed, and we actually get Jesus in a physical body. And this means that they have to kind of account for two things. What, hap what happened to his body after the crucifixion? So suddenly we get this tomb idea not mentioned by Paul. You'd think Paul would mention if there was an empty tomb and angels and all that stuff, you'd think Paul would kind of mention that to the Corinthians. He doesn't. But suddenly they pop up and they and they, those elements all develop and change. So as I mentioned before, the, the young man at the tomb turns eventually into an angel with a face like lightning who rolls away the stone and all that stuff. This is obviously crap. It's quite clearly crap. There's an earthquake in in the the Mark in the Matthew account. Well, did John, Luke, and and Matthew just think that that was an element they didn't want to put in? They just oh, yeah, we won't mention the earthquake. Uh, I've even had Christians say to me, well, maybe it was a very small earthquake that most people didn't notice. It's like, mate, come on, <laughs> you know, wasn't in the story at all. It was a small earthquake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just just makes no sense. But, but what's clearly happening here is, uh, is a story growing in the telling. So the question then becomes, what did it grow out of? And this is another argument that Christians often make where they, they say, well, you know, they, they, were, they were defeated after Jesus' death, they were, they were in despair, and then they bounce back and they, and they, they come back and they, and they start preaching a, a risen Jesus. The only way you can explain that would be if he actually rose from the dead, uh, which is complete crap. Um, actually, sociologists have done a lot of study on what happens when people have a high expectation of something remarkable that's about to happen. You know, the UFO is going to come or the end of the world is going to happen, and then it doesn't happen. And, and there's a, a classic study called When Prophecy Fails that was written back in the 1950s, and it was based on a UFO cult that, that did believe that a UFO was going to come and they were all going to be whisked off into the heavens. And not surprisingly, it didn't happen. And what, what they, the study found was that um, the people who had 
who hadn't, hadn't invested a great deal in the prophecy, so who'd just subscribed to the newsletter or just gone to a few lectures and, and believed, they then kind of just drifted away and went and found some other wacky cult to join. The people who had sold their homes and quit their jobs and gone off with the prophet uh, to, to wait for the UFO to come, they, they were much more heavily committed. So it was a bit more difficult, for, a lot more difficult for them psychologically to say, yeah, we're idiots and we're wrong. So what they did instead was when the prophet said, oh, well, here's the new prophecy and, and, and uh, here's how it's all explained. The, the aliens have decided to spare the earth. Then they went with that. So we're seeing something, and you see it all the time when prophecies like these don't come about. So what seems to be happening in, in the resurrection stories is a kind of cognitive dissonance. People, These people were expecting something amazing to happen when Jesus got to Jerusalem. What happened instead was he got arrested, crucified and died. So they then had to find a way, okay, how do we fit this new set of events with our expectations and our ideas about who Jesus was? You know, we thought he was the Messiah, now he's dead. How does that work? And the the you, you can see what they've done is gone, like good Jewish people would, gone back to their scriptures, found things in these scriptures in the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah that seem to indicate, oh, yeah, maybe this is what was meant to happen. And then they constructed the, the, the resurrection stories out of those, those, uh, those scriptural elements, which is why the resurrection stories are full of references to the Old Testament. They're basically saying this is what was meant to happen. But what we're seeing is a reflection of them coping with the death of Jesus by coming up with the idea that, in some sense, he was risen and then them seeing visions, almost certainly saw visions of him, not real ones, but, you know, people often see visions of, of people after the, um, of, of loved ones after they die. It's a psychological thing. And then from that came the, the whole theology of resurrection and, and, and everything that came, came from that. We, we've got parallel examples. So there was a guy back in the 90s, a uh, Jewish rabbi in, in, um, in New York, Rabbi Shearson, and he, he was meant to be the Messiah, according to this very, very small sect of Orthodox Jews. He then inconveniently died. Now, we know he's dead. We've got... He was buried. We've got a death certificate from uh, from a New York coroner, but there's still a group of those Jew, Jew, Orthodox Jews who believe that he's he's alive, or has risen from the dead, or is coming back. I mean, exact parallel with uh, with Jesus. The, the other thing that's interesting is that um, if you look in the Gospels, there's actually references to John the Baptist rising from the dead. So John the Baptist is kind of like a precursor of Jesus. The Gospels. Um, present him as being sort of the guy who was the prophet who was paving the way for Jesus and announces Jesus. But actually, if you read the earliest gospel, it's kind of not the case. He doesn't actually say anything to Jesus. He doesn't declare Jesus to be the Messiah. That all comes later in the later gospels. In the gospel of Mark, he, he, he just baptises Jesus and Jesus then wanders off into the desert. There's not even a conversation. Later on, John the Baptist sends messages uh, messengers to Jesus. John the Baptist by this stage is in, in prison, uh, has been imprisoned by Herod Antipas. And he, he he asked Jesus, are you the Messiah or is there someone else we should be waiting for? So John the Baptist isn't clear on who the hell Jesus is in this earliest version of the story. Then John the Baptist gets executed. Afterwards, there are, uh, there's a bit where uh, Herod Antipas hears about Jesus 
and thinks to himself or says to himself, this guy must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. And then there's another bit where Jesus says to his followers, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say that you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah, who was a guy who was taken off into, apparently, allegedly taken off into heaven and was due to come back at the end of time. And some say you are John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist is dead. So <laughs> Jesus be John the Baptist. There seems to have been this idea that John the Baptist had risen from the dead. And in, <clears throat> in the Acts of the Apostles, um, they actually come across, some of Jesus' followers come across guys who are baptising people, and they say, are you baptising in the name of Jesus? And they say, no, we're baptising in the name of John. So it seems that John the Baptist's following survived his death. Now, these are just fragments of information, but it does look as though the same thing happened with John the Baptist after he was executed, that people came up with this idea that in some sense he wasn't dead, that he was coming back or that he had risen from the dead and his his following continued afterwards as well. So this stuff seems to have been in the air at the time. So to get back to your question, what would convince me? Um, I can't think of anything given all this. I mean, it's quite clear to me that this, this is a story that, that arose in reaction to Jesus' death. It, it grew in the telling and it's not true. I pretty much have the same understanding, which kind of, it makes me feel a little hip, hip, hypocritical because if I was to ask a Christian, like, what would you need to change your mind? They they would say nothing. And I would think they were insane for saying that. But then if they asked me, like, what would it take for me to change my mind? If I had a vision from Jesus right now, I would just think I made it up. Yeah, I, 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 I was <laughs> to say the same thing. And then I, was just, then I thought, well, actually, no, I'd probably just think I was hallucinating. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I think <laughs> I'd probably need better evidence than we've got in the Gospels. Because the Gospels do look, as I've just explained, very much like stories that have grown in the telling. If we, if, if we found a new sort of Dead Sea Scrolls type scroll that was written, I don't know, 34 AD by Peter saying, here's what I saw, and we could verify it through carbon dating, <laughs> right? Would you Maybe, believe that? But I, I, just, I just don't think that's going to happen. And this is something that, that I think Bart Ehrman, it, 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 the, the New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman, who was a, an agnostic and who Christians really hate. Um, but he, he says, well, really, historians generally look at miracle stories and just assume that, that they're not true. And this is not an unreasonable thing because historians always assess history on the basis of likelihood. You know, if, I, if I'm looking at, at, the, at any historical event and there's, there's contradictory evidence, as there usually is, then what historical analysis does is, is says, okay, which, of, which scenario explains more, most of this evidence in the most parsimonious and irrational way? And that's what historical analysis is. Is, is that very similar or or they probably use Bayes theorem or Bayes re, Bayesian reasoning it's it's kind of based on on if you if you want to come up with a kind of a probabilistic um, underpinning to it yeah then Bayesian reasoning would would probably be the, the basis of it I think I think Occam's razor is is pretty much like the the main tool of the historian you know you, you've got you've got three different accounts uh, which elements can we can we reconcile and what what seems to be most likely that requires the least number of suppositions. It's a similar, similar sort of principle. 
but I, I think you know that the problem with with miracles of any kind is that the the probability that that they didn't happen is always going to be higher. Even if people with, who believe in miracles would have to agree that the probability that they didn't happen is always going to be higher. So they're, they're a difficult thing for historians to deal with, and on the whole, historians don't assume them. They they just sort of say, well, this probably isn't the case. So let's look for a naturalistic explanation for it, which makes things like the the resurrection fairly opaque for from for historical analysis in some senses, but in other senses, you know, when you look at, as I said, if you look at how the evidence lines up, it looks very much like a Jewish apocalyptic sect that had a belief about a guy with being the, being the Messiah, not being God, but being the Messiah. Got disappointed when he ended up being, you know, killed, and had to find a way we could found a way to cope. That's pretty much the origin of the whole of Christianity in one sentence. They weren't writing to a 21st century person. Their understanding of science uh, proofs. They could probably care less whether someone 2,000 years from now believes them or not. Yeah, uh, look, they, they certainly weren't writing in. This, this is what gets back to what I was saying before about our mindset being completely different to theirs. The other thing is, uh, I mentioned the they didn't right, probably think it? that the earth was going to last 2,000 years, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, certainly the guys who were writing the earlier Gospels thought that that, uh, the, uh, the, that the, the world was going to end. Well, certainly the world as, as they knew it was going to end and God was, was going to descend with armies of angels and so on. But, the yeah, so they weren't exactly writing for the ages. The, the other thing is that, as I mentioned before, in many ways it looks as though some of the miracle stories are not meant to be taken literally. They're more rhetorical. They're meant to be statements of who he was rather than genuine accounts of, of what actually happened. And I, I suspect that the gospel writers would be surprised if they walked into a, a fundamentalist Christian church and heard these, these miracle stories being, being pronounced as things that actually happened. I think they'd be surprised if they walked into a fundamentalist Christian church for a whole lot of reasons. For example, worshipping Jesus as a God, they, they didn't believe that. That came later. Uh, the Gospel writer of John, maybe, but the earlier ones, no. So they, they would probably be horrified. But, but they would be surprised to hear stories like the story of uh, walking on water or you know, feeding the 5,000 and so on to be taken literally because we can see direct parallels of those stories in the Old Testament. So there are stories about Elijah and Elisha which are very, very similar. And effectively what the gospel writers seem to be saying is he was like Elijah but more powerful. You know, he was like Moses but more significant. It's, it's a rhetorical thing. So I think it, we, we, would, we would possibly be making a category error to assume that all of the miracle stories were meant to be taken literally. Uh, the, the resurrection stories, even the resurrection stories, I think, are possibly not meant to be taken as being documentary fact because the gospel writer who wrote Matthew seems to have been working from the account in Mark. And Matthew's story, as I mentioned, is quite different to Mark. It's much more spectacular. You've got angels and, and you know, guards falling down and earthquakes and all this stuff, none of which is in Mark. So the gospel writer who wrote Matthew knew that he was adding stuff. Right? So, so what does that mean? Because that means that he knows that the, the guard story and the earthquake story and all that stuff isn't true in the sense that it happened, 
but he thinks it's true in the sense that it, it, it it's indicating the significance of Jesus rising from the dead. So in many ways, I think a lot of unbelievers, a lot of atheists, read the gospel stories a bit too straight uh, in much the same way that that, uh, that, that many, you know, most Christians do. And, and I suspect as ancient literature, it wasn't actually meant to be read that way. Yeah, I, th- I think that definitely helped my understanding of, I read the gospels as literature. And then so, yeah, like in hindsight now, I think looking at it in that view, I think is a lot better and favorable too. It doesn't make a, it doesn't make out people that believe these stories to be as as uh, ridiculous or you know <laughs> dumb or like whatever thing like e- the that atheists and like myself may- maybe would have thought or said ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah, it, it, they they come they come across as a bit more sophisticated, and and this is what what a lot of you know quite quite recent scholarship on on the gospels as literature um, is sort of saying. It's sort of saying well. The Gospels weren't written for peasants um, because peasants couldn't read. So the Gospels have to be read in the context of actually a, an elite who, who were also reading Homer, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and were also reading you know, some of those, those other um, works that I was talking about before, some of those, like those novels and so on. It has to be understood in that context. The Book of Acts, for example, is basically a, 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 a classic example of a, of a Greco-Roman novel. It, it's you know it's got journeys and it's got shipwrecks and it's got disputations and it's got a, you know exciting escapes and all this stuff. Now Christians just read it as like it's a newspaper report of what actually happened. I, I suspect people in the ancient world wouldn't have read it that way. Uh, I think you know it's hard to kind of come up with an analogy, but it'd be a bit like Someone presenting the story of of, uh, of, of, of of significant people like you know, Martin Luther King, but in a graphic novel form to make it accessible and easily understood within the context of the culture. It's a bit like that. Um, so, so, but because we, we don't have that, most people don't have that context. They don't see acts as being like a Greco-Roman novel. They, they just see it as being, they see it as being a whole, you know, Christians see it as being a holy book and the word of God, which um, I reckon the author of Acts would probably find a bit weird. Uh, the, the author, the author you know, Paul, consider, would, would consider it bizarre that his letters, which he would have just sort of dashed off or dictated to a scribe, uh, are now being discussed by theologians. <laughs> he, he, would have just found that, he would have just found that completely ridiculous. I don't know. He might have liked it. I don't know. But um, yeah. <laughs> they were just letters, you know. They were just stuff that he was writing. It's like like the emails you and I were exchanging the other day were being, in 2,000 years' time, being dissected by philosophers. It's just bizarre. Yeah. The, the um, Yeah, what would they call you? I guess you would be the... Huh. What's your, yeah. What's your title going to be? Cause you're, you know, you're going to be a new sec of atheists and, and, and you know, the, uh, the honorable, no, they are, they already got that one. Um, the, the enlightened one. I, I don't know. Who knows? Okay. Well, Tim, I think on that note, uh, thanks a lot. I definitely appreciate your, your time and anyone that's still listening, definitely check out his website. It's uh it's good for, as he mentioned, Christians will like it. It's, it's good historical stuff. Thanks, mate, and thanks for having me on. It's been lovely uh, talking to you. Hopefully, hopefully, people will find something of interest in what I've said, and if they 
uh, disagree with what I've said, you'll find I've got, usually got a fairly extensive article on my website to to back most of this stuff up. And I think. And Tim engages online. So if anyone, um, he might not engage with you, but he definitely engages with people online. So he, he's, he, he's very active. Active and, and, and sometimes sarcastic, be warned. Okay. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Uber. See you, man.